What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes. Here is what I have lined up for you today. Issues around the Virgil van Dijk transfer. Never fell out with Virgil and always knew it would go ahead eventually. But it was one where we had to prove that Southampton couldn't be bullied. Wow. Part two of my exclusive with Les Reed, former vice chairman at Southampton Football Club and technical director at the FA, is here and coming to you right now. But first of all, if you missed part one, be sure to check it out. Les and I spoke about what it really takes to run a Premier League club, from hiring managers like Poch to scouting players like Sadio Mane. In part two, which you're getting right here, right now, Les and I speak about the ins and outs of Virgil van Dijk's departure, Gareth Southgate in England's second golden generation, Jude Bellingham's development and Project 2024. We also go into Les's encounters and negotiations with the likes of Daniel Levy, Mino Raiola and Ralph Ragney. This is the What The Footy Podcast with Les Reed, part two. I hope you love it not like it i hope you love it so you know what to do download subscribe rate and review and tell a friend to tell a friend let's go knew some other guys liked me but i didn't know it was to that extent Imagine being a kid in primary school now it's a putting <laughs> powerful people and i think they need to recognize that but then also they need to be represented the right way sport in general is nothing without fans uh, based on you know one single source of revenue alone that being the tv let's just win this to appease the fan but just before mm-hmm. um, we, we go on to speak about some of the work you did there at England and uh, and how the sort of England team are, are sort of progressing there I thought it would just be sort of really good to just sort of just sort of link into that but delving a bit more at, at some of the academy uh, players that you guys have produced because some of them are now sort of fully fledged internationals and we've recently seen the likes of James Ward-Prowse and, and, and Luke Shaw being, being called up to the England team. Just just sort of talk to me about, I know you mentioned the whole idea of 50% of, of your academy players being produced for the first team, but how much of a gamble was it to really trust those young players? Because I think that's one of the hardest things we see now. Managers actually trusting players to, to effectively help them to, to navigate through the leagues. We see a lot of pressure on managers today. How difficult... Was it for you guys to make that decision to, to trust those boys? Yeah, it, it, it's always a difficult uh, scenario because there, there, are, there are essentially three ways in which um, players get transitioned into the first team. One is by purely by necessity. So if you take Chelsea's transfer ban, they, that, gave, that opened the door for a few, few of their young players to step up and they proved they could. So now, now that, that isn't a problem at Chelsea because they've had to do it, they've seen it work, and now they're prepared to, to invest in their young players and give them the opportunity. Um, and hopefully they'll continue to do that because they've got a, a fantastic academy that's always produced players. Um, but now there's an opportunity there for them. The other, and that was the same at Southampton when the place nearly went bankrupt. They had to sell anything, that any player that could be sold, they had to sell them. And therefore, a lot of young players who probably weren't good enough for first-team football were getting the opportunity. But at least it shone the light on the academy. 
And um, one of the things that was really important during that period of administration is they left the academy alone. So they, they, they didn't cut back on it. Um, Southampton's known for having uh, the only um, surviving satellite academy in Bath University, whereas there used to be about 15 of them around the country that other clubs uh, work with. They all gave them up for financial reasons at one time or another. Southampton kept that one going. Um, maybe that's because it produced Gareth Bale, but um, it, it did produce a lot of good young players from the kind of southwest of the country. Um, so the belief in the academy was a big thing. And um, the, the, the team that Alan Pardew put together, um, you know, didn't, they didn't have a significant amount of money to go out and buy lots of players at that point. Um, and so Alan decided to, to give Adam Lalana a chance, give uh, the Ops a chance. Um, and players, um, players who had come through the academy um, were young, but again, that was due to adversity. So that can happen. Um, the, the other reason it can happen is if you, if you make it part of your culture. So that's what we achieved at, at Southampton. Um, and therefore, incoming coaches are left uh, quite clear that part of their role is to include young players in their first team squad, initially through training with the with this first team and then minutes on the pitch. And we select coaches who've got that ability to develop young players and have had a track record of doing it before. So for them, it's not as big a gamble because they know they've done it before. They like the idea of promoting young players, but the club can give them the confidence if they do that, you know, they're not going to suffer for it. So the club will support you if even if results are not too good, if you bring young players through. Now, in order to do that, you have to have a structure in place where you've got really good youth set up with really good youth coaches, but all the other support systems around them. So that when you are recommending players uh, from the under-18s to the 23s to the first team, you're confident. So the youth coaches are confident. When they say, this boy will make it, they're confident. So you have to have that structure in place. And that covers everything from sports medicine, sports science, the psych stuff. So you know that a player can transition. All of those young players that actually made their debuts in Southampton's first team, um, you know, Harrison Reid at Fulham now, Callum Chambers at, at Arsenal, Matt Target, the Ox, yeah. Adam, Matt Target, um, they all made that transition really smoothly. Mm. You know, they they... they they went in and, and, and were comfortable because of the developmental work that goes on bringing to that point. And then knowing that from the age of 14, your destiny is to, to take this journey to the first team. So you need to do everything it takes to get there. So when they get there, they're confident at stepping over that line. Um, when they train regularly with the first team, the first team players give them confidence. You know, you soon know when the first team goes, he's not bad that Luke sure, is he? Yeah. You know, and and they welcome them into the dressing room, but but if you also recruit players with that mentality, so I mentioned there, why why was Hoiberg a good choice for us? Why does Alderweireld a good yeah. choice for us? Come through Ajax Academy, they get it, mm. they've been there, they've done that journey, so they're going to help young players when they come come through. Jose Font from Porto, um, Cedric Suarez from from mm. from, uh, from Lisbon, um, yeah, Sporting Lisbon. All good academy 
They've come through good academies. So that's all part of your culture as a club. And then, and then the other way that um, that young players get get selected is when um, you have um, coaches who um, are, are more comfortable working with young players, maybe than seasoned pros. Yeah, you know. So, so sometimes you'll see it where the, the a club a, a team gets broken up and and seasoned pros get replaced with young players and, and often that's because the coach is, is comfortable working with young players feels he can get more energy more motivation out of them um, than trying to keep keep the old pros going you know and and rest and play them rest and play them you know they, they have a, an attitude which is more I, I want young players I want a resilient robust team players are going to run through a brick wall for me um, and sometimes if this coach can stay long enough at that club and the, the club support him, um, then, you, then you get a, a, a kind of mid-range age team, mature, but, but really robust, really motivated, great team spirit. So you, you get those three, three ways, but all of it is about confidence. And, and it all starts really with ownership, senior management, senior leadership at the club's. Uh, they could, a lot of clubs talk a good game about youth and yeah. investing in our academy, but if the manager loses a few results, you know that they'll they'll jump on his back. So that causes fear, and 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 managers without great uh, evidence will go. I can't risk the young players, but in mm. fact they might risk older players who are not as good as the young players. Yeah, but it's not seen as as big a risk if they do that. So yeah, a lot. It's to do with confidence and it's to do with support. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think just linking on to some of, to, to almost like the role that you played in England as well. Obviously, that like we're seeing the success that we've had over the last couple of years with with Gareth Southgate, and um, I think even now as well that there's a bit of an inquest going in, on into what happened with the under twenty ones as well. I think if I look at it holistically, I think as an England fan myself, I think this is the most exciting time. As an England fan, I'd probably say since sort of pre-2007, you've got so many young, exciting players. I think there was a time where you were struggling to produce players who were comfortable on the ball, could take the ball in the half turn. How happy and confident are you in the future of, of England, this sort of next sort of second golden generation, for want of a better term, that we kind of have right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm really confident uh, for a number of reasons, um, and, I, and I'm probably unique in the ability to make a judgment based on uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, and now, because I've held that position at the FA twice, and the first time I got it, it I, I took over from Howard Wilkinson, who was the first technical director, um, but um, Howard's role was geared to developing England at elite level, whereas before that, the the role was coach education. So his predecessor, Charles Hughes, was was the director of coach education, Um, whereas this now encompassed coach education and elite football development. So, I mean, going back to those those days, I was coaching at Charlton Athletic and we just got promoted into the Premier League and I was headhunted to go in as as the director of technical development, first 
time the FA had ever employed anyone like that. Um, and, and my role was to develop academies, uh, which didn't exist up until that point, and develop academies for elite, elite football and then the international teams. So at that time, we only had the first team, the under-21s and the under-18s, and that was it. So to develop a pathway. And we, we after a lot of research, you know, I had a great time. I, my, my first job was to go to the 98 World Cup in France and do a technical report. And I was able to go and see training everywhere, meet people like Gerard Houllier, Amy Jacquet, talk about Claire Fontaine, you know, and, and come back and start work on a strategy for international player development. And we published a document called The Charter for Quality, and that really saw the start of a project towards the uh, football National Football Centre, St. George, now St. George's Park, and the academy system. Um, and that was built on the knowledge that we learned of 15 years of the FA National School at Lillishaw, where players like yeah, Joe yeah. Cole, Sol Cameron, Barnby had been, Jermaine Defoe. We had 16 players in each year group there, two year groups, 32 players. We wanted to provide that technical development that they were getting there to 250, 300 players in the, in the pool. And the only way to do that was to close the school, but do all the good stuff we learned from it in an academy system. Um, and so I, that, I, you know, that was my role, get that going, get around the clubs, introduce that, get them interested. We thought there'd be about 12 academies. We ended up with 48. It was a massive take-up. And so the whole thing, managing it, became really, really difficult. Um, and so we had to increase the number of staff we had. We had to have academy monitors and so on. Um, and then uh, we bought the land, which is now St. George's Park. We, we put all the pitches in, the landscaping in. Um, and then there was a, a change of a regime at the FA. Um, from chairman through chief executive. Um, and as a result of that, I left and, and um, so Trevor Brooking came in um, and they had a change of, um, change of heart around where, where they should be investing money. So they, they went from elite development to grassroots. So there was a swing to grassroots. The, the National Football Centre was cancelled. It was locked up for 10 years. It wasn't developed. And the academy system um, was really um, left alone until the Premier League decided they would take it over. Um, and as a result, you then end up 10 years later with EPPP and the current academy system we have. So way back then, the idea was to produce more efficient and better qualified coaches, better facilities, but key, technically more proficient players. Um, and a lot of people don't know that, you know, at, at Lillishaw, um, we, we employed Will Curver of Curver Coaching Technique, which was all about stepovers, ball manipulation. So all those kids like Joe Cole, you know, had, had yeah. two years of full-time coaching from a guy like Will Curver. And, you know, that, that's why Joe developed technically. We needed more Joes. We needed more. And we're getting them now because yeah. that's the kind of syllabus that's being taught you know, in the younger age groups in the academies now. So I'm not surprised to see them emerge. I'm disappointed they didn't emerge 10 years ago because we had a 10-year gap in that elite development programme. But Dan Ashworth came in, 
David Sheepshanks, who previous chairman of Ipswich, vice chairman of the FA, revived the St George's Park project. Um, they revived the player pathway, called it England DNA, um, and developed all the teams to the point where not only were we producing lots of good players, we were we were going through tournaments to final stages more often, and eventually we won a World Cup in two age groups. Um, which is which is the generation you're seeing now, the Phil Foden's and so on. So it, it hasn't surprised me. Um, the challenge at now is to keep the conveyor belt going. So at the moment, Gareth is benefiting from um, that that crop that came through um, with a lot of World Cup and tournament experience. Um, but the 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 one of the issues from COVID has been that player pathway for a lot of generations has been interrupted. Mm. So you're right, the under-21s is a good squad and we would have expected more from them. Um, but but as a under-21 group, having qualified um, uh, uh, very well, playing great football and winning lots of games and scoring goals, some of those players have moved on to Gareth and the under-21 team hasn't been to Together for a year, yeah, and it and it's you know that that's made a, a big difference. Um, um, so for me, I'm I'm concerned about that that each age group, that generation of players who've missed the years international player development. Uh, that needs catching up. That's going to take a couple of years to catch up to give them minutes on the pitch because we know that successful World Cup winning teams need a certain number of minutes on the pitch in international competition. And there's a, there's a whole group now that each, at each age level that have missed it for a year. So that's going to need a bit of catching up. That's no excuse because the under-21s are, are good players and they're playing um, in, in Premier League and Championship football. So, um, but uh, I would, to a certain extent... Um, be more concerned about what happens to that. If they get knocked out, they get knocked out. What happens to them next? What we can't have is that group of really talented players not getting enough international football over the next two years simply because that they can't get into Gareth's squad because it's that good and that, yeah. you know, that date. But there's no more international football for them. And it's a thing that I, I way back then, was trying to change without success politically, which which is that gap for every other team is fulfilled by their Olympic team. So most other countries have an under-23 team that competes in the Olympics. So if you've played in the European Championships, but you haven't quite transitioned into your senior national team, yeah. you've got a crack at the Olympics, which we, we don't have. So it, And this generation have missed a year of training at international level are the ones who are going to miss that with that gap. And so there needs to be a little bit of thinking about how that goes forward. But yeah. uh, that, all that said, the academies are producing really technically gifted players. The Brexit rules will put pressure on clubs to play young players and blood young players. So I think the future of England should be, should be good. And I think we should be considering, you know, over the next... 12 years, which is three World Cups, um, that we should be bringing home some silverware. 
And our big project just before I left was 2024. Yeah, by 2024, 2024 should be our year. Yeah, I, th- I think that should be our year. But I think an important thing as well is I think that we should have rushed some players' development. Like I look at Jude Bellingham, 17, 18 years of age. I think he would have really benefited from being with the under-21s for that tournament. Okay, he played a little bit of minutes against San Marino. He was on the bench against Albania. But someone like him, I think the decision was made that he would be better off in Gareth's squad, but it would have been great to, to, to have seen him play in and amongst his age group with people two, three years above him. Well, that's always the big decision, the big conundrum between the under-21 coach and the senior coach in terms of where do you make that transition and what point? Because if you wait until they're ready to go in and secure a first-team place, you probably waited too long. Yeah. Um, so you need that introduction by, by being in some games and being in and off the bench, getting to know the rest of the players. But at the same time, a European Championship finals is very valuable experience for a young player like like Jude. Uh, I think Jude will be fine because uh, knowing him, I think he's got the mentality, he's got the psychological robustness and resilience um, that, that not getting that experience isn't going to harm yeah, him. Yeah, he's playing Champions League football. Right. It would, yeah, it, it would have been good um, for us to see our stars like that yeah. in a European Championship on a European Championship stage. Um, but that, that's that's always the difficult move, especially as we do have that gap from 21 to senior that other other countries don't have. They have an Olympic squad, you know, and that that helps. But um, you know, you mentioned Jude. Um, you know, you, we've got another boy, Jamal Musiala, who's, who's, who's identified for Germany. Yeah. And you know, you think well, maybe if he'd have been picked by Gareth and not and not, um, you know, lower down in the system, maybe he would have identified for us. It's always a gamble. We know there's something like 80% of the players in our pathway who could have dual nationality. Uh, And there's a challenge for actually making sure they remain loyal to England um, and and keeping the faith um, rather than maybe taking an easier route to a different country because you can get senior national team football. Um, so yeah it's, it's, but I'm confident that that conveyor belt now is getting deeper and stronger and that the biggest problem the international coaches are going to have in the future is keeping them all happy because they all want to be in the starting 11 Yeah. so you want to go to a World Cup with the best 24 players you can um, but you can't pick 24 for, for each game so that's always a big one but the teams that do that well are the ones that win it so that's what we that's what we need to no, that's brilliant. But yeah, just some quick fire questions before I find out your answer. Who is the toughest negotiator that you've worked with uh, from another Premier League club? Wow, that's interesting. Um, they're, they're all very different. Um, I, I, what I must say, I've never had a, a, an aggressive negotiation. Yeah. Um, but you, 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 you know, a negotiation's cat and mouse. Um, so uh, it, Daniel, Daniel Levy's got a great reputation as a negotiator so um, yeah you have to have your wits about you and you have, to be, you have to plan it and work through that very very diligently or you'll trip up with Daniel um, but all the negotiations I've done with him have been good um, 
uh, I think the, the most difficult one has been the other way round, which was Ralph Ragnick at Red Bull. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Ralph, Ralph is a hard negotiator. Um, and um, that can be long drawn out. And one minute it can be on, one minute it can be off. And you've got a, you've got a judgment is, yeah, he's pulled it off, but he doesn't really mean it. So how long do I leave it before I go back again? Um, yeah, I would say Ralph. Ralph Ragnick's the toughest the toughest negotiator I've worked with. Yeah, just just even on on Ralph quickly, sorry, because obviously like Ralph, Michael Zork, um, Monchi as well get a lot of credit for the stuff that they've built. I remember speaking to Dave Bassett and asking him about does he feel he gets enough credit? Do, do you feel you get enough credit amongst those group in terms of what you've done? Because when I really look at it and I see the way people mention the likes of Michael Edwards and what he's done and when I look at what you've done, plucking the likes of Sadio Mane, Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, do you feel you get enough credit within the game for, for the stuff you've done, Les? Or? Um, prob- uh, probably not, because yeah. I've never really been one to seek a high profile. Yeah. Um, I think I've got a lot of respect within I the game, yeah. agency and, and, um, uh, and club chief executive and ownership level. Um, the other thing that probably people over, uh, uh, oversight really is I've never been called a, sp- a sporting director. Oh. So, you know, I, I was vice chairman at Southampton in the end. I started as executive director um, and then um, and then became, um, I started off as director of football development, then executive director, then vice chairman. So at no point was I ever called director of football or sporting director. So I'm probably not categorised in the same group. But I've, you know, I've, I've worked, I've spoken to Michael Zulk, Munchi, all of those guys, um, and obviously you meet them on, on the on the on the circuit. But yeah, never been seen in that light, I don't think. But I think that's partly to do with um, uh, categorisation, and, and also um, I, I don't, I, I never saw any the high profile for that kind of stuff though my reputation in the game is pretty good Mino Raiola who I've met many many times get on really well with never done a deal with says that he doesn't actually consider that he's got an agent's licence because you can't shouldn't really get an agent's licence till you've done a deal with Leslie yeah. so that for me is the biggest accolade if Mino feels that um, that that's good enough for no, me. do you know what it is I think, I think a lot of it comes down to People in the industry, and, and like when I researched you, they kind of know what you do and, and the sort of credibility there. But I think the media no one, and the fans don't really fully understand the role that happens behind the scenes with sporting directors, technical directors, vice chairman. And I guess yeah. it's kind of like my job, like speaking with people like Stuart King, to help people to understand how a lot of these things work, really. So... Uh, yeah, I mean it's quite interesting. Those those headhunters, most of those big firms who, who headhunt for those kind of executive roles, you know, when they get a brief, I'm normally the first person they phone yeah. up. You know, it, 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 I don't mean to give me the job. Yeah. I mean, you know, who do I recommend? Who do I know? Um, so yeah, I think within the game, you know, I've got a decent amount of credibility. The, the other thing is, you know, when it goes wrong, you definitely get yeah, the yeah. That's when you That's when your head's above the parapet, you know. But that goes with the job. And anyone I talk to now, when I do presentations to sporting director courses and stuff like that, 
is that goes with the job. You know, you've got to expect that everyone's put their faith in you. And if they, if if you win something, the manager did it. And if you lose something, if or you, it goes bad, it's your fault. You know, but that goes with it. You have to take that. Yeah. And uh, the other question is, which uh, player sell are you most proud of? Um, well, that's an interesting one. Um, uh, I, I think um, when when I sold Luke Shaw. Um, I, Luke, we'd had a number of bids from different clubs earlier for Luke Shaw but I convinced him and his parents it would have been the wrong move at the age he was then um, and you know we probably would have got two or three million in compensation um, when I actually sold him to Manchester United a couple of years down the line um, I think the expectation at the club was I'd get about 12 million and I got 30 yeah. so I'm quite Quite pleased with that, and and I think that's that was well worth it from their point of view. Um, the other one was as you know, well publicised issues around the Virgil Van Dyke transfer, yeah. which meant um, essentially um, having to dig your heels in on, on a principle and winning winning that winning that 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 principle. It didn't help. The, the team at the time because it co- caused a lot of issues but it was one where we had to prove that Southampton couldn't be bullied and um, never fell out with Virgil um, and always knew it would go ahead eventually um, but I'm just pleased that we didn't cave in as a club when we came under enormous pressure from a big club particularly a club that I'd done a number of other deals with that had all gone really really smoothly um, so um, always had a good relationship with Liverpool, still do. But um, I, I think it was a, it would have been a turning point for Southampton if we had not stuck out for what we stuck out for at that time. And I needed the backing of the owners to do that because a lot of owners might have said, just get, just, yeah. just, just get what you can. You know? Yeah, it was. And in the end, they got a bargain. Yeah, and then it's true because I think it was really topical at the time. There was talks of transfer requests and tapping up and it just the whole thing just seemed to drag. But I guess in the end, the club got more money, the player got the move and the rest is history, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, for me, that's, that gives me satisfaction when it all works out for everybody. So as long as the club gets the right money in the deal, as long as the other club feel they've got value in in the in the purchase, and then the player actually achieves the the things that he went there for. So with Sadio and well, all the guys are sent to Liverpool have ended up with you know uh, Premier League medals. Yeah. You know because they will tell you that I want to go, I want to win a medal. Uh, you know when they do, it, that, then it's it's then it's good all round. You know, um, and I think you know I think what that does it means the next signing believes you when you say if you come to us you, you'll be able to achieve, achieve your dreams because you've got a track record of doing it you know and and that 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 applies to a lot of players a lot of players that we that we moved on um so i'm i'm really proud of being able to be part of that process no definitely and uh, an upcoming sporting director to watch out for is that what you want me to predict yeah an upcoming one to to sort of watch out for who, who should we sort of watch out for yeah, well, I mean, obviously, Mitch 
at Monaco is really making a name for himself now. Um, so he's probably he's he's well well on that journey. Ross at Glasgow yeah, Rangers awesome. um, has done a great job with Stevie G. Ryan um, Bertrand, I think. <laughs> I think yeah. Well, if Ryan goes down that route, I'm pretty sure he'd be pretty pretty good at it. Um, I think there are a number of players now coming towards the end of their careers who are now looking at the potential of sporting directorship rather than coaching. Um, so, you know, that means the, the role is getting the right profile now. Um, so I think from a purely novice point of view, um, there, are, there, are, um, there are one or two uh, who um, have just started it. I mean... Michael Edwards should be in that category, but his profile's got so yeah. high now. You know, he'd probably think he's made it. He's not up and coming. Darren Fletcher. Um, John Murta is just yeah, going to say the, the Man United boys. Yeah, John Murta. Yeah, if 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 he gets the support and he, he you know, he, he, he's not criticised too much too early, uh, and and you know, the danger there is that. He's the new kid on the block, and therefore, if it doesn't work out, he's the one that gets the blame. But um, I think they've got a good system in place there now, and if the people mature within that system, including Darren Fletcher and those, I think you know it, it could work. Um, then um, I think the thing is, there's there's not a great big pool of talent because it's kind of new role. Um, and whilst there are people, you know, like Steve Round, who was one of the first to get his master's degree in sports directorship, um, opted to go back into coaching again. So maybe one for the future wow, yeah. when when he finally does decide. Um, and um, other than that, there are there are quite a few heads of recruitment, um, like Scott McLaughlin at Chelsea. Um, who uh, was was at Fulham in my time as an analyst and has moved on. Yeah, I think there's a few, but not many yeah. at the moment. Not many. Yeah. I think what we will see is less emphasis on trying to go and get Michael Zork or or Monchi, you know, or, or like Marcel Brands to Everton. Um, I think there will be more homegrown sporting directors who've come through the recruitment route to there. And there's a lot more training going on now. A lot, you know, everywhere you turn, there's a course for sporting yeah, directors. Yeah. And maybe I should, I should start running one. Maybe. No, you should, you should. I see, I see Hugo just started doing his player care um, certification. So you might as well start your own as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hugo's, so my, Hugo's one of my associates in my firm. So Hugo is our associate for player care. So basically, if I'm if I'm asked to consult on on a purchase of a club and they want to, you know, what's really clearly needed is a player care unit to go in there, then I, I would get Hugo in to do that. Um, so you know, I think there's more of that going to happen. I think player care is going to be right up there on the agenda going forward. And a sporting director's got to know about that because if you don't, you can you can fall foul of, of a lot of issues around mental health, well-being, safeguarding. You know, I think I think when players move into a country from another country, the player care process is really good. 
um, that's that's an attraction. You know, wives, girlfriends, um, family, mums and dads, you know, really put big store in the fact that, you know, when they move into another country, they're going to be looked after. So Hugo's, I think Hugo's, you know, got a lot to offer in that in that respect. Yeah, no, definitely. But it's now come to the time to reveal your answers to uh, what the foot are you lying for, Les? So uh, answer me this one. If I'd have said I almost signed Philip Coutinho without the story I told you, would you have agreed? Did you say yes, you nearly did or not? Would you I would have said that? yes, come on. Like, you, you signed Sadio Mane, Virgil van Dijk. Like, like I, th- like I think the biggest, the biggest claim I can say is I actually signed uh, Hoiberg on Football Manager back in the day before he signed him. So... Um, so um, right. I, I, I definitely, I definitely, I definitely have that one over on you. Well done, good judge. So I won the FA Trophy with Wildstone Football yeah. Club in a year that we we also won the conference or the national league in the same year. The only non-league conference double double. I won the nationwide trophy in 1999 with England under 15s, beating Argentina in the final where I had players like Jermaine Pennant, Jermaine Janus, Dean Ashton um, in my team, and Carlos Tevez played for Argentina in that game. Wow. Um, and then the playoff final trophy when I was coaching Charlton with Alan Kirbishley, which took us to the Premier League in 1988. Um, I've actually sat on the bench at Wembley probably 60 or 70 times. Um, due to international football um, so that one's true the interesting one is I I, it, I didn't play with George Best but I nearly yeah. played with him um, I, I was playing for Cambridge United and I got released and my last game Barry Fry um, came onto the pitch as I was leaving the pitch and asked me to sign for Dunstable Town when I for the following season uh, and I instead uh, signed for Woodford oh. Town. Two weeks after I turned Barry Fry down, he signed George Best and Jeff Astle. So I had to put up with going to Woodford Town and playing with Jimmy Greaves, Alan Gilzine, and Joe Kinnear, where the president was Bobby wow. Moore. So, yeah, I nearly played with George Best, but I did play with Jimmy Greaves. Which is still good as well. <laughs> no, that's brilliant, Les. But um, yeah, we always like to end the show with the what the footy question, which is what the footy needs to change or happen within your space. Seeing as you're sort of in the consulting game right now, it'd be good to sort of frame that question and know what is the single one biggest mistake that a lot of clubs get wrong uh, in terms of their culture and their strategy? What, what they get wrong is they don't look at that. Early date. So, so when a when people take over a club, they look at the finances. They get big uh, national banks and international banks and finance houses to do all the uh, accounting and the due diligence on the commercial structure of the club, the financial viability, and that normally ends up with them deciding whether their investment's a good one or not, and then they buy the club. It's only when they then do that and they own it, they start going, right, what should we do with the football? Whereas that really should be part of their due diligence in the first place. And that's how they make mistakes. Um, And the other thing is that existing owners of clubs, um, 
when they are when they are struggling, um, they haven't got necessarily a foundation through a good philosophy and a good structure and a good strategy for the long term that they can fall back on. Um, and so then they they look at it then, um, and that usually means we sack the manager and we expect the new manager to come in with his philosophy and develop his culture. But, of course, if you do that regularly, you never settle with a, a club yeah. culture. So for me, I think the biggest mistake that clubs make is they don't put enough importance into what are they, who are they as a club, what are we here for, and what is our culture, and therefore what are we going to build on for our future success. Um, so, you know, in my consultancy role, that's the area that I think um, I can help with uh, quite a lot particularly at the stage when owners are thinking about buying a club rather than when they've done it. Um, so I can give them a good idea of what it, what it might take to achieve their ambitions like I did with Southampton. Um, so that for me is a big thing because um, there are going to be a lot of changes in the game. There are going to be huge changes in the structure of the Champions League, the World Cups, UEFA, plus the Premier League and the EFL, it has to happen. You know, it, 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 clubs can't just keep losing money and being in danger of folding. So there's going to be a lot of investment, new investment in the game, and therefore um, people who own clubs have really got to look to what does what's the landscape of football going to look like in ten years' time? Because I better be preparing for that. Um, and I, you know, there is going to be not just in my area, but in football generally, a lot of change in the next Project Phoenix, years. eh? <laughs> Project Phoenix. No, that's, no, that's brilliant, <laughs> Les. Absolute pleasure having you on, on the podcast today. As I've sort of mentioned to you, as I sort of mentioned to you before, I worked at a club for, for a couple of seasons and, and I think great values there, the whole idea around the Southampton way and they used to ingrain the values into us. We used to carry it in our back pocket um, all, all the time as well and sort of similar values to the club that I support Arsenal but doing things the right way, bringing young players through and, and always improving and always going forward. So pleasure having you on the podcast and I believe that You've given some real value to, to fans, to execs out there that listen to the podcast. So thank you for your time, Liz. My pleasure and thanks for inviting me, Paul. Really enjoyed it. Have a good day. Thank you for everyone who's been tuning in and has loved listening to this two-part exclusive with Les Reed. If you loved listening, please make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The DMs are always open. The social media app is what the footy across all social channels. If you've enjoyed this two-part exclusive, which I know you have, I know you have, be sure to check out previous episodes. The pod has been blessed by so many legends within the game, from Chris Kirkland to Steve Morrow to Dave Bassett to Akin Solanke Corker to Eddie Bonsu who worked and represents players like Jaden Sancho, Todd Cantwell and Bukayo Saka. Guys, take care of yourselves and have a lovely and a fantastic week. Peace out. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now nice putting putting awesome. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fans.
Switching to Geico is a good idea, especially when you consider everything. First off, Geico makes it easy to switch. They have licensed agents available 24-7 online or over the phone. But if it's so easy, you might start thinking everything is easy, even big wave surfing. And it's not. It's actually quite difficult. Well, if you switch to Geico, you could save hundreds on car insurance. And you could keep saving by bundling your motorcycle, boat, and RV, plus your home or renter's insurance. But saving money might lead you to make some questionable purchases, like a 20-foot feather boa. And do you know how hard it is to clean a 20-foot feather boa? Well, they do have an industry-leading mobile app you can use to pay your bill, file and manage a claim, or add a new driver. But when life gets a little easier, it makes you too confident. And you start calling everyone ace. And you're better than that. Well, Geico has a 97% customer satisfaction rating and has been saving people money for 85 years. It's hard to beat that. But you're right. Switch to Geico. It's obviously a good idea. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. My dad used to say that. Sure, yeah. It's from Geico. Yeah, whenever I would ask my dad for life advice, he'd sit me down and say, Son, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. And look at me now, a well-adjusted adult with a drawer full of plastic bags I'll never use. (laughs) Okay, I'm confused. Was your dad a licensed GEICO agent? Nah, he was just a real good dad. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.